Most of the people on the planet, you do the wrong thing, like that's it. You, there's a consequence there, and it doesn't matter what your intention was. <laughs> so there's that from the start. You've got those two completely different lenses, people are viewing each other. It's a really hard thing to judge. I mean, you really need to look at what people are doing and not just look for a couple of signals and then all pile on. You know, sometimes people are like vaguely overstepping and it's salvageable. They have that cultural desire, you know, to connect and reconcile and reconnect and, you know, become human, all this sort of stuff. And, and you can't like, that's a beautiful flower trying to <laughs> emerge from the concrete, you know, come along and go, no, you can't do flowers and smash it, you know, which seems to be the response. Yes, from us, but also largely from our like allies in inverted commas are doing way too much policing of each other on our behalf. I feel <laughs> I don't know. It's a very complicated sort of space. It's unnecessarily complicated, I think. Greetings, future fossils. I'm Michael Garfield, welcoming you to episode 172 of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week, while recording this intro, I'm leaving the window open in hopes that you can hear this beautiful summer rain that is falling on us here in Santa Fe this evening, August 15th, the five-year anniversary of the best concert I've ever played at, at Boom Festival in Portugal in 2016. I only bring that up because that stage, much like this room from which I record, much like the conversation you're about to hear, much like my life and yours, all have one thing in common, which is that they are open systems. You could hear the dance music from the next stage over, just down the beach, while you were on stage trying to <laughs> play chill out. And while our stage manager didn't really care for it, it was an unavoidable part of even the most carefully planned festivals that I used to play at back in the day. And I think that's beautiful, really, because it was a constant and living reminder of the way that things open up into, bleed into, inform, and transform one another. This conversation with Tyson Yunkaporta, Senior Research Fellow at Deakin University, member of the Appalachian clan, author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, which is, by the way, probably the best book I read last year and a book I recommended so much that we eventually just decided to have a Future Fossils book club discussion on it, which you can find linked in the show notes. This conversation with Tyson, or, or what he would call a yarn, starts with us discussing the bird song I can hear outside of his window on the other end of our call. And it continues to orbit this notion that this modern conceit of individuality is based on false premises that in spite of how systems we can, for the sake of this conversation, call settler culture or the Western industrial world, divide human communities and even human beings in the singular in this ongoing effort to quantify, categorize, control, that each of us is radically contextual, both in terms of the way that we are shaped by contingencies such as the family of our birth, or the landscape and its agencies that form us, 
or the media environments that shape our thinking and through which we perform acts of extended cognition. You're never really just talking to a person. And Tyson says as much in this conversation. He says, we're never really just talking to Tyson Yunkaporta. We're talking to his family. We're talking to his home. And that is the permeable and dynamic frame to which I strive to constantly bend my attention and yours with Future Fossils podcast. So before we get started this week, I just want to take a moment to let you all know that first of all, I apologize for my complete incapability of achieving a routine release schedule with this show, but there are reasons, invisible reasons that I, I hope to make visible to you, including most recently the birth of my son, uh, my second child, Ian Taylor Garfield, this week on August 9th, who joins me and my wife, Nicole, and my daughter, Ada, and although he doesn't realize it yet, whose very existence completely reconfigures the calculations that I have to do about how I devote my time, energy, attention, love, and devotion to everything in my life, including this show. So it is true now in a way that it has always been, but qualitatively more so, that this show is really only possible because of the support of you and other members of the listening audience. And even though these conversations have always been conducted and shared with an explicit attention to all of the invisible parties on the other side of the one-way mirror of internet publishing. You loom more present and palpable, brighter and more obvious than you really ever have for me right now as I consider what is even possible with the future of future fossils. So I want to thank a number of people including Naomi Most for helping me edit this episode, and then also everyone who has been supporting the show on Patreon, as well as the new patrons that have signed up since the last episode, Jay Taylor, David Ross, Luke Robert Mason, and Ashley Fitzgerald. It is as plain and simple a truth as I can imagine that I could not be doing this without your support. And it is through the conversations and new friendships that have developed beyond the recordings that end up on the feed itself, in the Discord server, in the Facebook group, face-to-face, when we're privileged enough to meet in that way, that has me convinced that performing this translational work with you and for you is of value, in spite of the sacrifices required to keep it going, that it is worth it. So, if you agree, I hope that you will contribute in some small measure to this show and to the family and the agora that it supports, whether through support at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield or in whatever other ways you feel inspired. Before I leave you to enjoy this fabulously undisciplined and far-ranging and warm and funny and interesting conversation with an amazing person. I want to give thanks to everyone who has listened to and or purchased 
the songs that I recently released, House Ship on a Hill, which is publicly available exclusively at michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com. House Ship on a Hill is all music that I wrote last year amidst the turbulence and confusion of the pandemic and the social uprisings of last summer. And it transcribes the emotional depth and complexity of last year and my experience with my young family amidst it all in a way that I would be honored to share with you. So there's a link to that as well in the show notes, along with links to all of the books and uh, topics that we discuss here. I hope you find all of it useful. Thank you for giving this show and in particular Tyson Yunkaporti your attention. Feel free to reach out to me anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Be well and enjoy what I hope and trust will be merely the first of several wonderful yarns with Tyson. First of all, let me just say a shout out to the birds in your neighborhood. You can hear them. Yes. There's so much less bird song in the United States. And it's just such a beautiful yeah. thing to like, whenever I hear people on podcasts in Australia mm. with the window open, I'm just like, mm. oh yes, it's still there. Well, there's not much here in Melbourne. So I, I kind of feel like I'm in a bird desert here. It's like when you hear it, it's like, oh, fuck me, a bird. Lots of cats. Yeah, lots of cats, lots of urban foxes, you know, and, and there's just, you know, not a lot for a bird to do. But, you know, there, there are, I mean, there are like, you know, urban birds. You got the ibis, you know, it's sacred. It's a sacred bird everywhere in the world. You know, even like in Egypt and everything here, they call them bin chickens because they're just scavenging out of bins all the time. Like, Did you see there was like a meme circulating around where they're calling peacocks disco turkeys? <laughs> Like that's another bird that everybody regard. Like there's a huge sacred lore around it, and it's like good, good, t- you know, taking it down a a peg. Yeah, man. Well, the male ones, I love the female ones are rubbish. The the um <laughs> the boringest looking bird ever. I mean, it works for them, right? Yeah, it does. You you don't you don't want to draw too much attention to yourself if you can help it. Yeah. Oh, they're totally the they them of the avian world. Those fellas, I tell you, they taste like <laughs> shit though. But I did eat a peacock once. Because they, they kept coming around, you know, because people get them because they think it's a good idea, but then they get sick of getting woken up at, like, weird times. And like, and I thought, oh, well, they're good and fat. I'm going to knock one of those and eat it. And it was the weirdest meat. It's like this cross-hatched grain. It's tough as nails. Tasted like crap. Nothing you could do with it. I tried it so many ways. I tried it in a ground oven, slow cook, you know, for half a day. Nah, still tasted like shit. Still tougher than boot leather. I tried making soup and the soup tasted like shit. It's, you can't eat them. They're awful. Worst thing ever. I, a useless bird. I, I don't know. I mean, is that part of the, that may be like part of the defense? It's like you're never going to, you're never going to eat one twice. It might be. The natural defense is that my flesh is inedible. <laughs> I have a friend who uh, will go unnamed because it's a crime, hunted a koala with a bow and arrow for his his birthday and he said he's like his friend who's like i always wanted to eat koala so let's go <laughs> it's my birthday <laughs> it's like a real elite sport like you know we're gonna hunt endangered species for my birthday 
Yeah, not okay. But he said he instantly regretted it uh, because right. they, all they eat is eucalyptus, so they just taste like horrible, completely horrible. Yeah, unless you know how to cook them, though. It's menthol. <laughs> right. Sort of meat. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, I wonder if you, you know, you follow the, the Santa Fe Institute stuff. I know I, I sent you that conversation with Stephanie Crabtree and she's done work with the Martu mm. Mm. and her work with the Martu was on, on food web reconstruction. So like she was looking at just like all of the different kinds of, of bush meat that they were eating and all this yeah. stuff and just how amazingly diverse their diet is. And like, that's another thing that I was like, mm. is that just like an Australia thing? Because it, when they had the World's Fair in St. Louis, I forget when that was in the maybe 1932 or something like that. They were, you couldn't refrigerate anything. So they were just serving everything. Like, you know, people were eating raccoons and squirrels and it was all this like very, you know, uh, bougie kind of affair. But like yeah. for all of this food that is, you know, most Americans would now consider like redneck cuisine. But like, I, I yeah. wonder if we're, you know, like, I don't know, there's just a tension there. It's kind of interesting to yeah. explore, which like, it's actually better to eat diverse foods. Your bourgeoisie is always plundering the margins for menu options, Cult, like not just gastronomically, but culturally, you know. So, you know, and so you had all these permutations right through from the beatniks and, you know, every generation there's a new, like going right back to Germany with the Wondervogels, you know, plundering the peasants, you know, their uh, landscapes and everything else of, of like culturally, but also physical landscapes, you know, trying to find that reconnection but just kind of, uh, you know, picking the bits that they wanted and, and building this kind of, you know, fringe culture. Like it's been going on for as long as nation building has been a thing. So at least a century and every generation there's a new permutation. So you beat Nicks and all that sort of stuff. But, but, but each time there's a different focus. So you had those ones there in the States that were focusing on sort of race to racial tourism <laughs> going on, you know, and, and there were like uh, African Americans just sort of giving tours and, staging like fake shootings and stuff like that to take these tourists through and making making money from that but you know so you ended up with you know this entire subculture coming out of that for the for your middle classes for your bored youth you know with trust funds and then it was uh it was so class was another thing and then it was it was also there was also gender i think it was in the 20s marginalized sort of uh genders and sexualities they were the focus of, of, of that for a generation at one stage. And it all sort of culminated in hipsters who did all of them. Every every possible dimension of social space came together <laughs> in this sort of cultural sort of appropriation, you know, en masse. Because that was like class, gender, race, everything you can imagine. Um, and, and, and even through the sort of new agey plundering of, of the third and fourth worlds, you know, indigenous people and everything else. And, um, but also this, this kind of paleo harking back, you know, I, I don't know how old that is, but I think it, it started with the ancient Greeks with the hyperborea, you know, mythology they invented, like they invented these entire ethnographies of this, you know, this, we can get into that later that I'm, I'm rabbit holing now. But it's just, um, it's huge. Once you start looking into that, it's like, oh my God, this is something that's been going on for a good while. And it's all just funneled down into this hipster sort of thing. They, they, they've got like, you know, the mother load of, of all of the cultural appropriation throughout the ages, <laughs> all coalescing into um, these 
one pair of skinny jeans. <laughs> well, it's like this is casting the line real far out right away. And like, maybe we don't even actually address this with seriousness, but you know, I'm, I'm fascinated in a, in a kind of like, I don't know what to believe way with the UFO lore. Yeah. And one of the things that keeps coming up again and again in, in the lore is that the gray aliens are actually human beings, like the future humans. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've heard that one. That were coming back and abducting people and sampling humans and cows and things because they had, they'd gone through a genetic bottleneck in some catastrophe that they'd all hidden underground in their bunkers. And then when they came back out, you know, they were all inbred and they were missing something vital about, and so they were going back in time to try and rediscover what it meant to be human. And that's like, <laughs> they're doing like a pile, their paleo diet. Yeah, and so their paleo diet is is our genome and gut flora. That yeah, it, well, there's that whole the thing about what is it the uh ancient poop. Yeah, yeah. And like this whole thing about archaeologists never real never thinking that you had to check with the indigenous people to sample the the poop for gut flora. Well, especially like, that's I mean that's that's a, a big act of I don't know what you call it on your continent, brujeria or whatever you know, sorcery, you know, you don't take someone, if you're there taking someone's hair or fingernails or poo or, you know, anything like that, um, or blood, you know, that's, that's a capital offense. You get caught doing that, then <laughs> yeah, but you don't go and mess around with that stuff from people. You make them sick. Well, it was, it was like, you know, to that same point, uh, a couple of years ago on April fool's day, Google put out this, this press release about a Google toilet, that was going to like use big data analysis on your feces and tell you how to improve your diet and all this stuff. And like there were people standing in line for this joke, but there's like a healthy form of returning to reclaim something that you've lost. And that's something I'd love to discuss with you because mm. not that I'm going to use this as like a strict guide for our conversation, but I was asking a bunch of people in the future fossils discord and T-Rex Ophora said, I want to ask how we can start to write a new cultural story, how we meaning the colonizing inhabitants of our current home can write a new story for our environment that we can be proud to pass to the next generation Tyson speaks of the Maori tribe and how they as colonizers wrote a human or indigenous story. How do we learn from their story or the story of the Native American church or Brazilian ayahuasca churches who took the symbols of the colonizer in combination with touching the divine to reach through new culture? What would that story look like? Where do we seek the inspiration? Is our story more strongly connected to genealogy or connection to place or connection to our physical tribe? Are each factors in our storytelling? How do we hear each other's stories and not immediately accept or reject them, but rather seek to understand them and better understand ourselves? Mm. Still don't feel like I'm getting to the question, but that's what I want to spin yarn yeah. with Tyson and not just drop him an interview question. I want to trade stories, find the answers hidden in them. Thank you, T-Rex Afora. Yeah. But yeah, this is like, I mean, because I mean, it's like my mother. Okay. I'll just put my mom in this conversation because she, we have just like a, you know, like so many people do in the United States, like a smidge of indigenous heritage, you know, lost, denied, rediscovered. And she's really like clinging to that for something that she must not have found through. I mean, she, she relates to it kind of the way that she relates to like her Scottish heritage and like the Isle mm. of Skye and, and Iona and, you know, the house of Macbeth and all that stuff. And, and yet she's by all measures, you know, you know, middle-class white American boomer. Mm. 
and you know, and it's like on the one hand, I completely, I realize that she would be like indemnified for crimes of cultural appropriation. If you just like went to her house, but like at the same time, she's got, you know, like it's a genuine love yeah. and respect for the native people, yeah. you know, where she grew up, you know, arguably uh, American strains of abstract artwork were like heavily based on indigenous teachings and so on. So it's just like, how do you navigate that in a way where like, okay, so settler people are like spiritually clinging for a, like a flotation device, you know, like they've lost something important. Mm. And yeah. So like, as, as you sort of more broadly define the, you know, settler culture, mm. how do you reclaim that stuff? How do you restore the, the cultural topsoil without like stepping on someone's face to stop drowning yourself? Yeah. So right off the bat, you know, if you are from that minority sort of weird, weird cultural group on the planet that Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, you know, for a start, you have a um, completely different approach to culpability for wrongdoings. Like the most of the, you know, the artwork of or your intent doesn't count for shit when you've broken the law. You know what I mean? It didn't matter what you intended. Whereas in the weird sort of cultural side of things and in pretty much the Anglosphere around the planet, uh, in most of your sort of, you know, hyper civilized cultures in the world, there's this mitigation of like, oh, well, I didn't mean it or my intention was actually this. I had good intentions, but it just went wrong. And that, you know, if you can show that you're contrite now and that you don't have that evil intent, then it's a lesser sentence kind of thing. But not in our way and not for most of the people on the planet. Most of the people on the planet, you do the wrong thing, like that's it. You, there's a consequence there and it doesn't matter what your intention was. <laughs> so there's that from the start. You've got those two completely different lenses, people are viewing each other. It's a really hard thing to judge. You, I mean, you really need to look at what people are doing and not just look for a couple of signals and then all pile on. You know, sometimes people are like vaguely overstepping and it's salvageable. They have their cultural desire, you know, to connect and reconcile and reconnect and, you know, become human, all this sort of stuff. And, and you can't like, that's a beautiful flower trying to <laughs> emerge from the concrete, you know, come along and go, no, you can't do flowers and smash it, you know, which seems to be the response. Yes, from us, but also largely from our like allies in inverted commas are doing way too much policing of each other on, on our behalf. I feel, <laughs> I don't know. It's a very complicated sort of space. It's unnecessarily complicated. I think what would make it simpler? What would make it simpler? Oh, look, you know, people <laughs> look, everybody asking me, you know, how, how, how do we do this? And so, I mean, I do refer people to one podcast episode. It's just called What Can I Do? It's with a, a local settler woman from here and how she's engaged ritually, spiritually, and in every other way, in ways that I find to have integrity, whereby she, she just regards it as a very urgent thing that needs to happen. The settler peoples need to come back under the law of the land and the law of the place where they are. It's very urgent. If it doesn't happen within the next few years, everything and everyone's going to die. And so she's done it. She's done it with integrity and rigor. And so I just direct people to her. Mm. But in that interview, I, I also like unpack some of my kind of feelings about her doing that, you know, and some of my concerns and, <laughs> and issues with it, just so it's all out on the table. But, you know, finish in a place where it's undeniably good what she's doing. But anyway, that look, that's all very vague. H how do we drill down into that uh, 
See, the, it, it is vague. Like the question that you read to me, it's not even a question. It's a big ramble. No. It's trying to form a concept. Basically, it's asking, what the fuck can I do? What can I do? I don't know what to do. Everything's a misstep. And it's like, well, yeah, that's it's probably how it's going to be for a while. You know, first of all, you have to go, well, you know, I'm a settler. I'm a colonist. Ah, okay, what kind of a colonist can I be? And you kind of got to do all this Bayesian work. Of, you know what I mean? It, you're really taking a leap, and it's it's dangerous. But okay, so let's say you start with the idea of well, there's the Roman concept of the colony, which is coming from a word that describes like a fortress that's there to protect the empire's interests in places where they extract tribute. You know, so there's that version. Is that the kind of colony you want to be in? Is that the kind of colonist that you are, or are you more along the Greek lines, which the Greek word for colony, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it basically translates as a home away from home. It's like, okay, is that a good interim position? For if I have to be this colonist, can I be, you know, taking that as a first step of coming into a place as a home, but it's a home away from home. So I'm actually acknowledging that and having to come into a dialogue with this land, this country. And, and I guess that's probably how this yarn's going to come out. If I look back at your last few yarns on this podcast, which I reviewed yesterday, went back through. And I can see, you can see these themes emerging that might tie together. So, I mean, I guess your themes for this yarn broadly would be um, time, place, and embodiment. Mm -hmm. And I guess in those broad themes, you might start to see an emergent kind of pattern of how to be (laughs) in in transition. Because it is a time of transition. And it is that for everyone. Anybody who thinks they're occupying like this great position, you know, intellectually or ideologically or even in terms of their group identity, that they're not somehow entangled (laughs) with all these global systems. So as an indigenous person speaking English, how can I think or be or speak from outside of the colony? And to whom would I speak? You know, at those times when I am completely outside of that, there's no translation across. There's no talking, thinking beyond that. That just is. But that's compromised because the bulldozers are coming. You know, so I moved to this city for a, a few years ago and I have to stay here for another three years and then I'm, I'm going back home. But, you know, home's different now since I moved here. And like I keep thinking, you know, every time things get hard, here I go, oh, fuck this, I'm going to go. I'm going to go back up, just live on the beach. But that beach is gone now. There's a big bauxite bloody plant, aluminium, you know, like right there on that head there. And then there's a bauxite mine right around it. You can't even get to that beach now. And if you could, you wouldn't be able to eat the things that are there. That's like this one beach that you could live on it all year and just get fat. (laughs) That's my memory of it. And that just in the last few years, that's gone. So, you know, the bulldozers are coming. Whether you like it or not, that world is coming. That empire is, is here. And how do you speak from outside of that empire? Where can you stand and speak? And just the act of speaking back to it is putting you in it. You know, there is no standpoint, like pure standpoint that's, you know, of wonderful intent and purity. That doesn't exist. And that's part of that fantasy of reaching back. And I guess we'll get back to that because that's huge. That story of like Hyperborea and that myth and that gammon ethnography that came out of ancient Greece, you know, that's a big one. There's, there's a genealogy to that, which you, you can come through and find where all the false narratives are and I guess pitfalls and traps to avoid. 
So that actually, William Irwin Thompson, mm-hmm. who's this historian who just yeah transformed my life and is a major influence on this this show. He talked about white nationalism. Yeah, this is he was writing about this stuff before Make America Great Again and and all of that. But like, nonetheless, it was still. He was like, this is the the ghost dance of the rednecks. And when I look at the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, I think there's a clear line between that and something that you wrote about in Sand Talk Mm. about the opioid addiction in coal mining towns Mm. and like people that struggle because industry has moved on. They haven't been kicked off of their ancestral homelands in this generation anyway, Mm. but the life force animating their community economically has been relocated offshore somewhere and these people are digging back into this this retro romantic fantasy in order to animate what he talks about as the sunset effect Mm. the sunlight gets like violently red right before it goes down you know it's just like this thing that seems to flare up in its final moments I'm glad that you brought this stuff up because this is what really interests me about when you talk about not being able to hold on to one's identity group identity. I think a lot mm. more about like ego identity and things changing so fast that we have to keep learning. We, you know, we can't mm. be the same person mm. that we were 20 years ago, but it's true of our groups. And I think yeah. where I'd like to explore right now next with you is in looking at that in terms of COVID and like all the trauma that people are going to be processing through this and the subsequent calamities that everyone is expecting now that like we've all kind of come, you know, used to forest fires and droughts. And so indigenous peoples seem to have a much more like living recent memory of this kind of shit. But it is certainly something that I'm watching families that were like affluent Mm. European settler families Mm. that are now like living out of their cars and catching as catch can. And I just invite you into that. Yeah. Oh, look, it, it just get it gets so tangled. Because, like, I'm immediately coming into that, then you have to unpack, you know, myths of progress and primitivism. And I guess that intersects with the other stuff we're, we'd be looking at. So, you know, there are big problematics, you know, involved with romanticizing the past and you know, going back for your paleo diet, etc. getting your um, medieval bloody fecal transplant or <laughs> whatever you're going to do. <laughs> but... um you know, so there's heaps of problems with that. And there's heaps of, and we'll get to the, um, the weird, like what they call white supremacy sort of side of things now, but it's, it's so much more than that. And we'll get to that as well. Um, but, but straight away, like, so the first thing that people talk about, see, I'm thinking about this in terms of COVID, but the first thing people say, you know, when you start talking about indigenous knowledges and their utility and the idea that there are affordances that were there already that you're trying to reach with your technology, which, you know, I tell you, you could have those affordances right now without having to build the tech for it and wreck the place. You know, um, when you start talking about it, it's like, oh, yeah, but shouldn't you be grateful that we came here because we've brought, you know, superior medicine and we've actually extended lifespans and, you know, what about medicine? What about modern medicine? You know, isn't this progress? And it's like, well, like what? Tell me, because I haven't benefited from modern medicine once in my life. I've never been where it hasn't made me sicker. It, they're good for, they, they're really good at stitching you up. I could definitely go to the hospital on any when I need to get stitched up because my stitches are useless. It's an ugly <laughs> scar, so I try to stitch myself. And I'm like, no, no, no I'm going to get the doctor to do that. He's good at that. He practiced on a goddamn orange for like six months in his first year of med school. He knows what he's doing. There are good things there. But then there's like, you know, they always bring up penicillin. What the hell? 
you know, the Moors were scraping that stuff off their saddle leather and using it for battle wounds, like, you know, forever. And, and lots of people were using molds and packed them in a poultice with spider webs and stuff like that. Even in Europe, they were doing that, for God's sake. But anyway, so tell us why this penicillin is the greatest bloody thing ever. You know, oh, it's good for infections. I'm like, yeah, but, I mean, there's lots of different plant medicines and everything else for different kinds of infections rather than this one big blanket thing, which can be a problem. But tell me, like, what specifically are all syphilis, you know? Aren't you glad that we came and, and brought you this medicine to cure your syphilis? I'm like, dude, we didn't have syphilis. <laughs> Pretty much all the diseases that modern medicine can cure or assist with or treat, these are all modern diseases. These are all diseases coming from the same economic system that's producing the cures, which half the time produce new pathologies as well. You know, So this is all problematic to me. I mean, I don't want to critique your enlightenment too much. I spend most of the show critiquing the Enlightenment. I mean, I, if you've listened to a few episodes. Yeah. But, you know, we, we've we got to have a conversation. You know, it's, it's, it's just a dialogue. And, you know, <laughs> so don't get too hot under the collar, people, if we're talking about this Enlightenment. You know, I've, had, I've, I've made really good friends and lost them just from, like, questioning the Enlightenment, age of reason and all that sort of thing. You know, people are really attached to it. You know, that's cool and everything. But it was 200 years ago, 250 years you know, you arrived here and you hadn't invented sanitation yet. You were throwing your shit in the street. You got off your boats like vomiting blood. You had pustules all over you. Smell like shit. And what was your medicine that you brought here? You were bloodletting. That was the medicine. Even the, your leeches didn't survive the journey. But, you know, I'm sorry, but you didn't arrive here with a laptop and bring us all this technology. That's coming from, you know, plunder of knowledges and combinatorials of those things through a financial system over a very short period of time. So anyway, so there's all these problems with that. So when I look at COVID, I'm looking at that as well. And, and you can see these uh, dichotomies emerging with this myth of primitivism and the myth of progress and everybody's stuck arguing that back and forth. And it just gets difficult. And then, you know, the, the, the group identities thing then too, it's like if you actually belong to a, an actual group that is not weird, like Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, those categories don't mean anything to you. Your belongingness isn't to some abstract demographic category. That only works if you're in that minority on the planet. For everyone else, your, your identity is with your family and clan and community, and your village, and there's heaps of diversity in there. And you know, you are, you're suspicious of strangers, people even maybe in your same region but those who are outside of your clan. You know, you don't attack people outside of your own clan because that's their clan's job. You know, you don't criticize the behavior of others outside of the clan. You don't punish that. You look inside your own clan. And there's only those, you know, warfare breaks out between the two clans if the clan just lets someone keep doing the wrong thing, breaking the law against your group, you know. So there just isn't this stuff that's going on with all, uh, you know, people, you know, hurling invective at each other from their different ideological and group identity sort of clusters. That's just a weird thing. And that's got nothing to do with us. Most of the rest of the world doesn't live in that. Most of the rest of the world are in extended families still. And that, that's where your group identity lies. You know, some people from the West still get that. Italians still understand that, <laughs> for example. <laughs> so my buddy is very much a Sicilian yeah. and operates in this worldview. And he's a very skilled audio editor. And I tried to get him hired at this org that both of us have been friends with for years and turned into this thing mm. because they're going through this transition from, you know, who do you know that would fit this? 
like who can we hire? Who can we bring in the best people that we know to they're concerned that they're going to come under fire for not conducting a fair hiring search. And so you actually can't hire qualified people if mm. you know them because that looks like cronyism. Yeah. And he and I don't, I mean, I, it's like, I get it yeah. on one level. Yeah. It's all very like, but we do and, that. Nepotism like, is, it makes sense. It's efficient. It's, it guarantees quality. And, you know, and if you, right. you don't have to go to team building seminars, you got your fucking team. That's my cousin done. Right. <laughs> right. But it's like, so it's funny. Cause I, I oh God, I can't remember who, who it was that just wrote the book, like in the last year on the papal decree that people can't marry their, mm. like, uh, however many oh, rem- their cousins, oh, yeah, I'm- and that and that that's the thing about West the Western society is like that you have to marry strangers. I, I'm balls deep in that book at the moment. It's it's beautiful. That's huge. Yeah, but the weirdest people on earth, or something like that, is called. Yes, the weirdest people in the world. Joseph Henrik. Ah, man. Yes, I love that guy, and I disagree with about fifty percent of what he says, or his conclusions, or his take on it. But that doesn't matter. It's it's freaking good research. So I think it sort of gathers everything we've been talking about into one zone, yeah. because you know the idea that you shouldn't be hiring your yeah. friends because it will look unfair yeah. to other people in this like very very abstract. dissociated society Mm. like one of the most popular articles i ever wrote was about the transformational festival culture and it's like transforming what exactly okay so Mm. they're trying not Mm. to make this just like an obscenely consumeristic kind of a situation like you're supposed to go into this thing but you know festivals aren't new that's like a global thing going back forever and the fact that they show up as this thing where it's like you're buying a ticket to your own future self (laughs) and like your own community that lies on the other side side of this gate yeah it's like such a symptom of pathology yeah but the, these clusters of individuals that they're not communities right <laughs> right they're not they're, they're sort of groups and group identities and there's so many layers of abstraction between them and their actual relationships within that and they don't even know what relationship means they think it's about you know making those connections and congeniality and and feeling good being with people and sharing ideas with like-minded people all that sort of thing that that's not what it is but that's what the church needed to destroy in places where they wanted to get that economy going they needed people as individuals and we only need them as individuals because we can't extract wealth from a clan we can't extract wealth from an extended family that communally owns property and that holds that in perpetuity property needs to be owned by an individual that way we can extract it from that individual and so yeah they did it this fellow talks about they um they did it through the marriage laws and making sure that people couldn't marry right up even if you were six cousins it was so distant that it was a great 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 you had in common you weren't allowed to marry them so it meant no one could marry locally you know you couldn't form extended families these things had to be broken up they made that happen like just by changing the the marriage law, basically, they changed everything and they, they broke everyone into these individuals. And then, you know, the idea of being in relation and being in kin, it was kind of like a sin, you know. Anyway, so then on, on their deathbed, people could be guaranteed going to heaven, you know, willing all of their, their lands and wealth to the church as an individual. So that could happen. But also they could sell indulgences to people because it was impossible to get married in those days without marrying some kind of relative. So you'd have to pay the church to, for them to turn a blind eye, <laughs> you know, and then they could continue to extort that money down the track when they threatened to annul you you know, marriage, but they could uh, excommunicate you or that other one. Anathema, that's even worse. Anathema is like, you're definitely going to hell and you're finished. You're nothing on the earth. 
you know, oh my God. Yeah, they could do terrible things. So that changed everything. And this idea that close kin relation and actual group identities, like your family identity, your clan identity, your village identity, you know, that uh, your mate would call it a paisano thing, you know, <laughs> the people from your village. That's the big sin. You can't have that. And it's still like that's the sin today. You're encouraged economically. You have to brand yourself. You are responsible for your branding. And it's, you know, you show belongingness by showing your, you know, intersectionalities through various demographics because that's your community now. People who share your preference for this or share your bloody basic genetic markers or whatever for that. You know, <laughs> and that's, that has to be your community or you, you know, you share, you, you're all love burning man. So that, that's your community. Okay. So this is another place where William Irwin Thompson has talked about this as the sanguinal polity, you know, the family, the tribe. Yeah. Then history gives the geographic polity. Mm. You know, like the nation, which is not sanguinal necessarily. You might be a resident of Athens, but as a resident of Athens, you're still, you occupy something that's taken off in the digital media space, the noetic polity, like what you're talking about. Uh, you know, the people that, yeah. you know, we love Burning Man. We all camp in the same place. And like, it's a really weird thing in the way that that festival and, and others like it represent a kind of physicalization of the social networks of the internet. Cause it's like mm. these people that don't see each other all year and then they're, camped all together for one week and it's like those are the people that are into like getting spanked or whatever but like you know it's not like the noetic polity just erased geographic and sanguinal polities they're still there yeah well they're not wrong either they can't be wrong like it can't be wrong what i'm feeling for you know being like team garfield right you know what i mean like i, I never sort of met you until now and that's got i mean obviously a weak link because we're talking through a screen but you know it feels good you know, like I know all your stuff and, you know, I'm into it. Right. Like all your gay friends are online, that kind of thing. Like it's, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There is something, I mean, I, I just wonder, I mean, is that just some algorithms pressing my buttons and make me want to be like Mike? <laughs> it, it's weird because it feels right. feels good. You know, and this relationality is good. But then I guess here's the thing. It's whether we're, um, you know, individuals floating in space and making those connections or whether we're connected people. And that if it's you and your people interfacing now with me and my people, which I kind of always bring that. Um, and I'm always speaking from, you know, the elders and my, but my older siblings as well, that means. And, you know, I'm always speaking from that and intensely aware of that and then feeding back things that I find to the rest of the family that way. You know, as much as possible, I also bring my woman, my spouse into these dialogues as well and into this work. And so for me, it's a connected thing. It's always connected to family. I've always got my kids running around in the background too, you know, so there's yeah. that. I feel like it's a meeting of families going on here when I do this. But I guess if you're just individuals, you know, sort of pinging around in space and sort of, you know, I don't know, just sort of mating like genetic algorithms in a void, <laughs> it's kind of... <laughs> randomly splicing until all your actual diversity is lost and you've got this sort of decadent, degraded... <laughs> 
code that just sort of disintegrates into nothing and is useless, you probably want to avoid that. I was actually kind of hoping my two-year-old would barge in on this call like she usually does. Yeah, yeah. You know, to discuss sort of the, the bright and the dark of, you know, everyone feeling their way through the pandemic and just sort of general age of turbulent transition stuff. Mm. That's something that everybody I talk to is just immensely grateful that working from home has meant that their employers have to accept that there's, this is like a, was it uh, Aaron Klaus at, at SFI did this study where it was like 80% of academics over the age of 40 were parents. Mm -hmm. And yet when you apply for grants, there's no acknowledgement of this, like the whole publisher parish incentive structure yeah. doesn't acknowledge that I'm about to have a kid. I'm going to take some time off. And it's just, you just fall off the treadmill. Yeah. Going back to the uh, diverse foraging thing and like when that's good because you're helping sort of cultivate biodiversity in your land mm. or like in your home versus diverse foraging where you're just randomly putting on like other people's cultural stuff in order to try and like find your yeah. uh, spiritual daily nutritional quotas or whatever. Yeah. It, it occurs to me that it maybe at least in the United States that the reason the diets just are not as diverse as they were is because of economies of scale, because yeah. of factory farming and standardization. Yeah. And this gets to something that I really, I heard you talking about it on your show about Maori MAGA people <laughs> and like indigenous people being swept up yeah. into these white supremacist conspiracy theories because, you know, like what I caught from you saying this, what I was hearing was, well, it's actually, it's easy to buy into those conspiracy theories because you have this history of being oppressed by people like a small handful of people that are completely living in on the other side of the planet have no you know yeah. kin connection to you whatsoever have never actually stepped foot on your land and it's the same as like the pennsylvanian mm. Mm. coal miners in that respect it's like as more and more of society scales up to the global systems that we're embedded in then that sense of alienation and, and disempowerment is its own pandemic yeah uh, the idea with the Maori Maga, but also the, that podcast you're referring to, that was, that took me months to research that was looking into the effects of uh, disinformation on our communities. And it's pretty huge. And the radicalization happens quicker, you know, simply because of our like recent, very recent and even current experience of real actual conspiracies. <laughs> like, for example, they, um, Wall Street buying up all of the water on Aboriginal land in Australia. That's real. That's happening right now. You know, that's causing massive environmental problems, but, but also oh, just horrendous things down the track. That's a conspiracy. It's a real one that's happening, you know, and we feel the effects of that on the ground and no one's really interested in it. You know, that even you go, oh, well, on your island there, the residential schools, there's actual abuse of children, actual molestation <laughs> happening in our communities. And that's just been denied over and over again. And we've just been gaslit and gaslit about it. Like, oh, yeah, but no, it wasn't that bad. Well, genocide's a bit of a strong word, you know. <laughs> Invasion's a bit of a strong word, you know. We prefer peaceful settlement. All these things, you know, people denying massacres, denying everything. You know, so we're already on the back foot with that. So if somebody shows us a video that says, you know, Hillary Clinton's eating Haitian children, we just go, yeah, that's probably true, bros. <laughs> You know, we don't need the slow induction through Stefan Molyneux being nice to us for 40 hours and teaching us about economics before he suddenly jumps into the, the white supremacy stuff. It's just like <laughs> you throw out the bizarre conspiracy theory and we'll be like, well, yeah, it's probably true. There's um, 
<laughs> there's worse things going on right here. So, yeah, why wouldn't that be true? So what happens? We've got a, a tighter sort of evolutionary cycle there, the generational cycle with that. So, so yeah, as late, even as late adopters getting radicalized by this disinformation, you can actually see, I don't know, it's, it's like, a, it's like a, a live natural experiment happening before your eyes where you can probably see where all the disinformation things are going to end up just by observing how that evolves, you know, rapidly in indigenous communities. That was my hypothesis anyway. That's why that's worth looking into. But we've got it here. We've got like lots of people in Aboriginal communities saying some outlandish stuff, like really anti-Semitic, you know, racist stuff. It's like, oh, you know, George Soros is um, using this Aboriginal filmmaker or this Aboriginal person to, you know, to destroy our communities and, <laughs> You know, and, and it's a Jewish plot to annex Australia or something. <laughs> it's there's some weird stuff, man, and it's quite thick out there, and a lot of it's quite racist. You know, there's a lot of anti-Asian stuff. There's a lot of oh, you wouldn't believe. It's terrifying, but yeah, we, we've got it. So you've got you know Maori Maga. They're identifying with you know white supremacist movements because they actually feel more heard by them, and and weirdly, your white supremacist movements are a lot more inclusive. And they'll actually listen to indigenous people's problems <laughs> more than everybody else will. So, you know, we've got our communities feeling more heard by, you know, these lunatic fringe than by anyone else. Mind you, you know, the people who are running those things, they're, they're probably just basically installing that as a kind of Operation Human Shield thing for when, <laughs> when everything kicks off, because you know who's going to get shot first, eh? Yeah. I don't know. It's it's a weird one. That's a big rabbit hole. It messed with my head. Looking at all the disinformation, all that sort of stuff, for a start, that changed my algorithms online. And that, and that changed my programming and my, the way that I think about things. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. You can't go as deep as you said that you did with that in those episodes without it messing with your head. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But that was off the back of, you know. So after I wrote that book, Sand Talk, you know, I thought oh, I'd better actually brush up on this complexity theory because, you know, I'm actually a real novice. So I better get into it. And, you know, so that's when I find like Jim Rutt. And as soon as you get into the complexity community, there's other overlapping communities where you can't avoid sort of becoming part of the intellectual dark web for a start. You know, so you find that in your algorithm and you find that in your identity. And next minute you're saying things like libtard, you know, <laughs> you just catch yourself saying it. And you're like, where, where did that come from? <laughs> it, you know, it, it does change you, all these things. I don't know how much free will there is, you know, if you're spending any time online, <laughs> you know, you, your identities that are being formed for you. I don't know how much free will we have in those. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's Jaron Lanier's whole thing about disengaging from social media. Mm. He's like, you just become the, like the tip of the tentacle. Yeah. You know, like the wires are just going into the back of your head. Yeah. But then are you, are you speaking with people in the world? Because <laughs> you get got that way too. Right. You know? I mean, I, I found that. I, I got my first mobile phone in 2016. And so I watched myself like in real time, radically becoming hard, like rewired completely. Um, but it's only recently that I've had enough money to be able to buy a decent phone where I can have a bunch of apps on there and, and all that kind of thing too. So, and you know, that changes you again. Can you talk about that? Because I, I, it, I didn't go quite so long, but I didn't do smartphones at all. I, I was mm. basically dragged mm. unwillingly into getting a little, you know, burner little thing yeah. by my, my girlfriend. After that, even I was just making calls on my laptop. 
I was holding out as long as I could. And then in 2013, well, people were changing. Yeah, you could see it. And I'm, I'm curious, you you're one of the only other people I know who got into it as an adult. Mm. And I'm curious what that was like when you say you could see yourself changing, what was, what was changing? It just wrecked my brain. Like I had um, just my, my web of relations. I found it damaged. I, I found new layers of abstraction between myself and my relationships you know, with place, my ability to connect with new place was severely disrupted. Yeah. And, and I was connecting with people in very different ways. They were very weak links and that affected my cognition. I couldn't think as in the same sort of complex ways. I mean, part of writing the book was, I mean, I'm, I got to get this down because I'm losing it. This is kind of this dementia almost happening, you know, because all my knowledge is in relationships and it's embodied in with objects and places. And we'll talk about that more, but that was crumbling. And as those sort of networks crumble, those living networks of relations crumble, you know, knowledge is lost with that, you know, and even your cognitive abilities are destroyed with it. And I found that's what was happening through the phone. But I'd observed that happening for like a decade before that with everybody around me. I was watching that happen in my family, in my community, everything else. I saw literacy rates go through the roof. Adult literacy really increased very quickly. People who were illiterate at 40 were suddenly illiterate within a couple of weeks of getting their phone. So that was amazing. But it also rewired their brain completely just being literate, as you know, the research on that <laughs> is pretty definitive. I mean, it biologically hardwire changes your brain in pretty catastrophic and inefficient ways, you know, from facial recognition to all kinds of things. So you see that damage in the relationships and I was seeing it all around me for years and I didn't know what it was. And but I knew what it was as soon as I got that phone. I was like, oh, that's that's what it is. But I hated them. I, uh, I was having trouble like talking to people because they're all their whole world is mediated through these devices. There's a lot of waiting time of sitting around waiting for people while I just suddenly went quiet and they were looking at this box for 40 minutes. Anyway, yeah, I did get a phone. You kind of can't live without it now. Well, I can't go to the shops at the moment without it because you've got to you know, scan your way in. You've got to check in because of the COVID thing. But even way before, way before COVID, I had to have a smartphone just for work. I can't log on to my computer without an app that verifies who I am. There's got to be a passcode there. You can only do that through your mobile phone. So if you don't have a mobile phone, you can't be employed in the knowledge economy. But I went through undergrad so long ago, I did the entire degree just handwriting all my essays. That's how long ago <laughs> I did my undergrad, you know. So there's, again, this rhymes with the little gray men story where it's like they, mm. you know, so the story goes, they are like a hive mind or something, you know, they're not like really like solid individuals in the way that we think about individuals in like, you know, age of reason, yeah. self-authoring billiard ball world. But they're also like, I think I was talking about this with Eric Wargo. I don't know if that's one of the episodes you listened to, but he was mm. you know, talking about this. Um, they are like in some way an extension of the ship or like, you know, the real, it's like an avatar type thing where it's like, they're not like, they're just like a disposable glove mm. that the real person, you know, these bodies are like, you know, biomechanical spacesuits or something. Yeah. And I don't know if you read, you know, you, you talk about following SFI's work. You know, one of the papers that I know I bring up on that show all the time is, mm. is, uh, the information theory of individuality. Yeah. Where they create a continuum. They say, listen, you know, this whole like binary notion of individuality is insufficient. And like we need a definition where individuals can be more or less bound 
you know, where they can be loose or like scaffolded by the environment, like a spider in its web. Yeah. Or colonial, like ants, where colony is really making the decisions and the individuals don't really have like a solid identity or, mm. you know, memory. They just sort of are what the colony needs at any time. And yeah, well, that, that's kind of rubbish. Because that's not what the patterning of our species is. And that's not our ecological niche. It doesn't fit with that. And it's not what we're here for. As a custodial species, we are supposed to have that free will. And we are supposed to have a tension and balance between autonomy and relatedness. Right. So the, the Borg fear, that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Well, look, that's the patterning for even our entire governance model comes right down to that. That fractalizes out to make a governance model that um, can be continental and even international. You know, it's the reason we like we've never had imperialism on our continent until obviously 250 years ago. But you know, so you have this this at this basic unit, you have yourself, and you are an individual. And here's the core of it of your self determining governance, but also you know the governance in the community. Nobody can tell you what to do. Nobody is your fucking boss ever. You decide what you're going to do from moment to moment, you know, so it's like phenomenal cosmic power, but itty bitty living space in terms of you're constrained by your web of relationships. So you actually can't exist as an individual without being in relation to a unique web of human and non-human entities in your community and in your landscape, in your homeland there. And look, your web of relationships is different to everybody else's who is and has ever been. That's your fingerprint on the earth. You are unique. You know, but no one can tell you what to do. But yes, you are an individual, but you have obligations within your network of relations or you can't exist. If you don't tend to your relationships to make sure that you're in good relation in that web, then that web falls apart and you are lost. You become nothing. You become anathema. I guess that's our excommunication is you can excommunicate yourself because <laughs> that's where, you know, when you start to break down on relatedness, that's when you start to try and boss other people. And I guess that's where these artificial permanent hierarchies start emerging. It's from people who become disconnected from that. And it's interesting what you said about the gray aliens, because it's like this kind of prosthetic embodiment. It's not a real embodiment that's arising from a, a landscape and arising from a community. It's just this disposable prosthetic that you can sort of drive around. But the idea of that being a hive, like, you know, and you can only individuate in that way, you know, through these little prosthetics and, and even that is limited, you know, this hive mind thing. I mean, that, that might work for some species in their niches from a really simplistic point of view, but that's not what we are and that's not what we'll ever be. Only because the rare earth metals won't last long enough to turn us into grey aliens anyway. And these phones will finish soon enough. Let us pray. So this, you know, talking about shunning mm. and tribal excommunication, yeah. this piece, you know, you say, yeah, you have free will, but also at the same time, whether or not you intended to screw over this person, yeah. you know, you're going to face the consequences. Yeah. And, you know, some of these consequences seem like amazingly harsh yeah. to modern weirdos mm. because... There's there's like a different value placed on the sanctity of the individual yeah. versus like right relations mm -hmm. and obligation, yeah. you know. And so to riff on like a Marshall McLuhan thing where he talks about new media environments retrieving elements of culture that were buried by the last one, ah. you know. So he's like he talks about the Internet. 
Well, he talks about electronic media generally mm. as retrieving elements of an oral society that mm. were buried by print. Mm. And like one of those things is, I think he actually coined the term neo-tribalism. Is the banishment. Is, the, is banishing people. Is, <laughs> okay. So like, you yeah, know, yeah. I'm curious, you know, like cancel culture. Well, it, but it's different because as I said, you can't police people outside of your clan. Mm-hmm. So in what they're calling oral cultures hunt together. Like, right. But everybody's thinking this like global society, the rhetoric is global village yeah. yeah yeah and that's just i'm sorry it doesn't work but as i was saying in our governance system with that autonomy relatedness at the most basic thing of you in all your kinship pairs every pair it has that governance structure of it you're completely free but you're also bound in that relational space together and you're bound to improve and inc- beautify increase the combinatorials in the knowledge that sits between you that relational knowledge you know within that web and there are protocols for how you behave within that so you have to follow the protocols, but at the same time, no one can boss you and you're completely free. Mm. That scales up because then that pair, you know, you and this other person, no one can boss you too. So that you too, and there is a pronoun for that. So the two of you, that's like nip in my language, you too, you, you, no one can boss you. But at the same time, you belong to somebody, not as a possession, but you belong in relation to somebody else. So you are bound then in this extended family. Now, your extended family is completely autonomous. No other family can tell your family what to do. But you're bound in a network with other families who are within your clan. And your clan is completely autonomous. No one in the tribe, no other clan in the tribe can tell you what to do. However, (laughs) you're bound (laughs) together in a group of clans that must exchange and coexist and follow the protocols. And that's your tribe, who is completely autonomous and self-determining. And that is inalienable. And these, you know, this is the bioregion within which you live and that your language arises from and your culture arises from this landscape. It's unique. That's you. You're an individual tribe with complete autonomy. No one can ever imperialize, annex, you know, your place. That's unthinkable. You can have wars, you know, but you can't damage each other too much and you can't steal each other's land. That's understood within the web of relations beyond that. So you are completely autonomous, but you're bound within networks with other tribes within a region who all, you know, they have to come under that law. And that law says you can't steal each other's land, for example. So everything is kept stable within that. Now, your region, completely autonomous. No one can tell you what to do, but that's networked in with the other regions. So it scales up into, you know, what we refer to as a continental common law. And a lot of that is a sort of a common sort of ritual pattern or ritual complexes. So we have like, you know, so serpent law is one of those ones that binds right across. My dad tells me it doesn't matter where I get initiated. I can be initiated anywhere from Tasmania to, you know, Western Australia. Anyway, as he says, Bora is Bora. And so Bora is the sacred site that you get, um, you know, initiated through. You go through that ritual, uh, sacred ground. And he's like, no, Bora is Bora. That's a continental common law. And it doesn't matter where you go through or with which mob or what specific L-O-R-E you're learning there. It's one big L-A-W law. So that's how it works. And that's how that scales up. And that was really important to note and understand in order to answer the next thing that you said that I've, I, I, it escapes me now. I've lost it. What was that? Yeah. Cancel culture. Yeah. The cancel culture. And then broadly, this issue of like, clearly there are these economies of scale because living in a city, you know, this whole thing about like paying people to shop for yeah. you because you don't have time to go shopping mm. for yourself and like, 
you get into the city and everything speeds up and there are benefits to that, right? People make more money, more, you know, the Jeffrey West stuff, more patents, et cetera. You know, these economies of scale are all brittle. And so like you try to scale up this stuff to a global community and then suddenly people are attacking people that they don't have any, there's no stakeholding. Yeah. That global community, you know, you can scale like everything right down from that first kinship pair. You scale it right up to a vast continental common law. And arguably that can be global as well, because we have stories about, you know, our old people going out to other places and teaching other people like right up into Asia and even out into Oceania to teach that law. Yeah. So you can scale it even beyond the continent. But if the foundations of your law are wrong and you don't have solid protocols that haven't been developed over time and they have to be emergent, you can't doctor these things. You can't tinker protocols that are going to work. These things have to come out of that demotic sort of space, you know. It has to be free-range organic bloody protocols coming out because otherwise they're not complex enough. They have to be emergent within the system, as we know, you know. And however, these this isn't what's happening online. So they're scaling up these big global sort of group identities, but there's no decent protocols. It's still, it's individuals all butting heads and fighting for dominance so that their particular narrative, their hot take on it will come out on top. It's the wild west. It's dog eat dog out there. Do you have any hope that we can establish like Bayesian common priors? Yeah. Right. Like, like, are we just going to have to suffer so much together that? So you can do whatever you want. No one can bust you. But I think if you can at least be held accountable to adhere to your the internal logic of what you're doing, that would be a good start. But at the moment, we don't even have that. You know, so I have uh, this person recently goes, um, well, my pronouns are him, they. And I'm like, so yeah, that's mad. You're, you're actually subverting the dichotomy of like singular and plural as well. But also you're subverting the dichotomy of subject and object. <laughs> your life is a work of art, sibling. That is that is that is amazing you know but tell me so tell me the rules so you know so if i'm so do i say to somebody um him wants a cup of tea so could you put the kettle on for they so you're singular as the subject which is expressed as an object but you're plural <laughs> as an object which is expressed as a subject which is like i am loving that the, just this fractal like i'm no oh, my ontology is just tripled you know just dealing with the logic of that that's incredible my brother can you do, i mean my siblings sorry and oh my siblings my siblings <laughs> depending on where it is in the sentence anyway so i mean for me to figure out the linguistic stuff of that and I'm like, oh tell me how it works in this situation that situation tell me the, the how you've worked out the grammar and they went um sorry him him said like just started giving this this explanation you know, uh, so, you know, non-binary people are, you know, experience lots of oppression and we, you know, have really high rates of suicide. So, um, you know, it's important to do our pronouns. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, man, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm bored with that. Sorry for calling you man just now, but that's just <laughs> how I talk. What, how does it work? <laughs> so like, yeah, I, I'm just really interested in the linguistics of this and, and how you arrived at it. And it turns out, um, him hadn't thought it through all the externalities of what was going to happen through that linguistic choice and how that was going to impact on they you know and whereas i really enjoyed the the loops of jumping through those hoops and then what that did to my grammar and how much that subverted grammar and subject and object and singular plural in my ontology that was awesome 
I thought that had been planned and that that was a very subversive, you know, act upon the world linguistically, ontologically in the world. Um, but it wasn't. It was just something that it was just someone who didn't have to have any accountability for maintaining the internal logic of their position and who then did not have to deal with the repercussions of that, but outsourced all of the, um, the consequences, outsourced all of the consequences to everyone else because him didn't have to use the pronouns that him had organized for they. That was fine. That's everybody else for everyone else to sort out. But then him wasn't happy with me actually using it like this. Huh. I started using he, they a couple months ago in my SFI email signatures because some of the other millennials working there were kind of encouraging us to start contributing pronouns. And I was like, well, this is, this is a space where I can. So when you're doing the action, you're male. All right. But, but when you're being acted upon, you're in the plural. So isn't that like inherently patriarchal and misogynistic? God damn it, Michael, I'm disappointed. No, no, no. What I what I read was excommunicated. <laughs> like the the riff on it that I really liked was it was for people who don't feel comfortable having to stake their identity on one side or the other of the binary. Right but also don't care to put other people on edge about how to use language around them. You know, I was reading this great Twitter thread by someone who identifies as like she, they, she was saying, they were saying that, yeah, it's just like, well, okay, I'm non-binary, but I don't want you to be concerned yeah. about using the wrong pronoun. And I yeah. liked it for the same reasons that you just described, which was that like, for me, it was a way of inviting conversation about ontological weirdness about, you know, I reject yeah. The self other, like Euclidean boundary. You know, like, I, like I'm constantly bringing up this guy, Richard Doyle at mm. Penn State. He, he likes to use the term ecodelic instead of psychedelic. It's invoking your awareness of the way that you and your environment are actually folded up fractally into each other. And that like, it's like the coastline, like the closer you look, the longer the coastline gets. And like the more awareness you bring to, you know, the subject, the more contorted your subjectivity really is. And like you're, you know, you're made, you're like the holobiont, right? You're not just human DNA. You're mm. all the bacteria and weird critters living inside of you. And I feel like done with that kind of attitude that the non-binary pronoun thing is just a way to invite people into a conversation about the insufficiencies of our language. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like the, how like subject verb object just isn't enough anymore. That's just it. But that, that's why I was really excited about that, you know, and, and finding out what the linguistics were behind it. But it wasn't an invitation to dialogue, unfortunately. There's another sibling there who's, um, was using it, you know, and I noticed it raises the subject of lotion in conversation <laughs> regularly. And I know it's a trap. I know they're trying to trap me. <laughs> I know it's trying to trap me into a uh, Silence of the Lambs cancelable. Because, <laughs> how? Oh, you know, I just I have to like cover my mouth and like bear down really hard so I don't do the line. Because that's some transphobic <laughs> business right there. You know, it seems like that's a transhumanist approach which is the like just trying to completely re-territorialize yeah. language for your like whatever it suits you as an individual it's like acting like it doesn't have a history but like, it's still from a colonial perspective it's from this weird minority perspective and ontology these things are being created from because they're being created in opposition to settler sexualities uh -huh. but not through any kind of understanding of any kind of sexuality or gender that sits outside of the imperial or colonial experience or, or Christian experience. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, there are that many different genders and sexualities out in the world that, you know, don't have a name because they're not needed. That's just people. That's just folks, you know? 
expressing who they are and that that might that will certainly change for a lot of people throughout their life as well but that um you know if you look in indigenous languages for the names for these things i mean a lot of them just don't exist because you know these are settler constructs these are you know the constructs of the nation builders you know um and so to actually to to build entire entirely you know different identities from that even from an opposition to that is still using that as your foundation and that's a shaky ass foundation because that's only a blip in time and those settler sexualities do not reflect any part of our patterning you know as like our biological patterning as a species and you know our um you know our, our sacred you know duty on this place and way of being our law it doesn't reflect any of that anyway all of this came as a scalability issue <laughs> and then and there was some question of, of of technologies and things like that yeah well you know okay coming through there's another kind of it brought me back to a smart room that you mentioned in a previous episode oh yes the smart room and yeah. uh but we'll get to that yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so so you know i know is it megan kelleher is that how you say your name your wife yeah that she works with the holochain people and i i love i love their their project and i love their you know the way that they think about databases and and you know permission based relationships as this like fractal infinitely yeah. scalable thing and and that's that's where i want to place my hope for you know for the yeah. crypto space uh um, well, you know we're not married yet oh really we're not actually married yet ah. we're still on the vector covid kind of wrecked that oh really but then I saw I like I reproposed to her. Like we're engaged, but then I reproposed to her and proposed we get married on blockchain. Uh-huh. Yeah. And she responds with this short story. Uh-huh. I can't remember who wrote it. It's the same person who wrote The Quantum Thief, I think. Oh, Hanu Rajanimi. Mad short story. So she like showed me the problems with that. With <laughs> you know, it's this kind of and it ended up being this built-in loophole for the male to be able to extract himself from this relationship when you know aspects of the smart contract were not met, or he could actually break <laughs> that himself. And um, yeah, and and just sort of end it like consequence-free. Um, but there was a smart car involved. And the, the, the data set that the AI for the smart car had, had originally been grazing on was, um, was, was romantic films <laughs> and stuff like that. And so in, in its only, its, 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 its main thing as a learning machine, it was to maximize people tipping it as a smart car, mm. was to maximize tips from people. So it drew on all this uh, romance movie data and knew that it had to create uh, drama and tension to increase the amount of tips. So it did that and completely destroyed this woman's marriage. So anyway, that was her response to my proposal um, to get married on the blockchain. That's so that's uh, so, uh, yeah. yeah. So we're living in the same house. We're engaged, but like, I'm still chasing around. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. you know, I'm, I've been with my, I call her my wife. We've been together for 17 years next month. Uh, mm. We're about to have our second kid. We were engaged twice and now we're happily just whatever because yeah. she's on her Medicaid. Right. Like, you know, the, the government is paying for her health care. And if I got okay. married to her, they would stop. Wow. And so we just. That's a, disin a, a disincentive there. It really is. It's a strong disincentive. <laughs> that's to that's weird. Yeah. But, you know. Well, look, we're trying to figure out. We're trying to figure out a way to do a wedding. And we're trying to figure out, you know, because in Australia, somewhere is always on lockdown or on post-lockdown where there's restrictions. 
And so, you know, any anyone, like any event that you would have in one place in Australia where people are coming from all over is going to end up with, like a best-case scenario, half the people are going to finish up in a quarantine for two weeks. You know what I mean? Um, and, and most of our fam- family couldn't afford the motel bills for two weeks. <laughs> so, you know, we can't have this wedding until COVID's And it's like, well, COVID's not going to be dead. This is the reality now. So we're trying to redesign this idea of a wedding. We want, And, and so I propose like a progressive wedding, you know, like a progressive dinner. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, that's only rolling the dice once. Because if, if it's a location that ev- one location where we are, where everybody has to come, then that, that's rolling, that's lots of dice in the air. But if it's, um, if it's us who's traveling to the families all around for lots of tiny weddings <laughs> in each place or celebrations, you know, then, you know, it's a progressive wedding. Then that's, we're only rolling the dice on our travel then rather than on everybody else's. So it's, um, Anyway, I thought that was brilliant. Anyway, she doesn't like it. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it, it gets to that, you know, it's funny because like, you know, when I muse on that, one of the temptations of a wedding was that at least, you know, her family is strangely functional and strangely mm. still all living in the same area. And, yes. you know, that's like, <laughs> I I feel... My dad and my stepmom, my dad remarried into a similar kind of situation. Huge Canadian Dutch mm. family. They all live within a few miles of each other. You know, they're all very happy. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, whereas, uh, you know, my, my family is a, is a disaster. It's, a, it's like a, it exploded and everybody's everywhere. And it's, it's this sort of like social, uh, familial consequences of like the, this, you know, running this, it, this hyper individual logic to its, conclusion where like you know you love your family but you're scattered all over the place and the only time you're ever going to see each other is not even at the holidays like you have to really punctuate it with some major life event and get them all in one place you know and like what's it going to take to get all you bastards into one room you know like you said that some of them don't even want to you know so i don't know like i wonder there's something really nice and modular about the idea Mm. of a uh you know you and your your wife just going around, or the, you know, your br- bride and groom just traveling from place to place. But that's, to me, mm. I don't know, that starts to sound like, like the life that we kind of already have, uh, at least on my end, like, or like the life that, yeah. the life that we, that like the life <laughs> we're trying to escape, which is, yeah. is one that's where it's it. like you two as a unit are kind of not beholden in this yeah. way. But if it's one event and you're rolling the dice on that event, then it's 50 50 as to whether everybody loses their airfares. Uh, you yeah. know, you lose your deposit on everything and you, you've spent all that money and it doesn't happen. You know, that, that's if it's one event. But if it's like 12 different events and, you know, you're the only variable that's moving, then it's, um, you know, you're going to get eight out of 10 probably. It's a guerrilla wedding. Yeah, it like is. Guerrilla warfare. Is. Yeah. It is. It's um, asymmetrical. Uh, <laughs> asymmetrical coupling yeah well there's like two things i hope we have time for today yeah one is just to like kind of wrap this 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 notion Mm. about smart contracts and and so on Mm. i remember there being this and then this gets back to the question about scaling this sort of agency within right relation Mm. that there's like lots of people in the 
blockchain space that are like, oh, you know, we will have these, you know, these, these contracts that are guaranteed by code and we will, mm. you know, that way we don't have to trust each other because we can't, yeah. because we can't anyway, because we eliminate trust. Well, we, we can't trust <laughs> each other because we're making deals with people on the other side of the planet now. So like, how do you yeah. compensate for that? But you know, that's like, it was Vitalik Buterin, the guy mm. who, you know, invented Ethereum was talking to Dan Larimer, the guy who invented EOS. I remember mm. the big debate they were having a few years ago where Vitalik was like, so how do I code this thing so that people can't gang up on us? So that like state mm. actors can't run a, you know, can't amass way more computational power than everyone on the Ethereum blockchain and cheat, like break it. Yeah. Um, and Dan Larimer was like, well, you can't. Like there's always yeah. a bigger fish. And that's sort of yeah. like, this this question you're gonna you're gonna have a hard fork and then you're gonna have to have humans in the loop a group of people who are gonna reset that right make that happen but like but then that's when it's inevitable that that um liquid democracy will come in there so where everybody's got a proxy yeah that the, and and then that group's going to decide what the what the new block's going to be and, and all that kind of thing and i mean so ben gertzel's into that and, yeah. and as you know jim rutt jim rutt's been the one pushing that for a long time but that's the only place where it's going to end up and then once that's a governance model in in blockchain or whatever else i mean it's certainly going to spread from there and um you know there are pluses and minuses for liquid democracy right well i mean <laughs> yeah i just you know just thinking about this it's like no matter what kind of rules you and the people in your network agree to it just seems mm. like there's always the possibility that like someone else comes in with more power and yeah. decides they're not going to play by those rules and like yeah. that's to the you know like to, like yes you can scale it's a game theory thing right it's like yes you can yeah. scale cooperation indefinitely mm. and yet we look back over history and it's like but colonial People still came in and, and like killed a bunch mm. of people. And, and, you know, it's like, so, you know, it's this question of like, how do you, how do you really prevent cheating at all? And I know you can't, right? Like there's, mm. there's no way like cheating is like, well, you only can with the governance model that I outlined before. Right. But how do you get everybody? You have to well, get everybody on at the same time, right? Yeah. Like, oh, that's it. It's transitioning from it to it is something else. But okay. Here's the thing. The law is in the land. So that's that's the thing. And that's the answer to the question that was first asked by one of your listeners at the start. Uh-huh. It wasn't quite a question. Yeah. But that's that's what that's where you go to with it. And it's it's gonna take too long to explain what, what a, a real connection to country is, what the interspecies communication is, what the what it is to communicate with a place, with a bioregion, you know, etc. But there's a shortcut. It's it's your smart room thing. So tell me, tell me, tell me the smart room story. Okay. So yeah. So that fellow with the trillion. John, John C. Wright, who is unfortunately, uh, I found out after reading all of his brilliant books that he's a, uh, like a Trump MAGA, big, like bigoted misogyny guy. So, so yeah, you know, tread yeah. lightly, but wrote some amazing works of science fiction and one in which this guy injects himself with this, this stuff that makes him super intelligent. And so he figures out that he can, he, he can control the like a bunch of uh, autonomic functions in his body like how much mm. blood is flowing to his arm and stuff like this so he can control this heat map mm. you know and and like all of these other things like the pace and character of his breathing and all this stuff and so he's in this this room that's uh sensing not just what he's 
you know, not just like speech and gesture, the things that, you know, mm. normal humans have conscious control over, but all yeah. of the other things that we don't, all of our biometrics that normally are, mm. are, are just, uh, reflexive. And so he's mm. using it as his, his entire body as the user interface. So, and like yeah. that, that's, that seems like this sort of biotic energetic sort right, of that like, you know, language is able to be expressed through the interface with the smart room. Yeah. So when I, th- when I talk with like the T fairy in episode 100 or Onyx Ashanti about the future of language, it's about like the way that dance and all of these other signals that we're unconsciously emitting all of the time reenter the language so that it's, mm. that we're not stuck in these like paltry subject verb object kind of, you know, yeah. we're not, we're not trapped by language yeah. anymore. So if people, if people could imagine that could imagine what it would be to be in a smart room that sophisticated that where you could express yourself through every every aspect of your biology and your energy and your intent and everything else would be expressed in a multitude of ways and there's all kinds of messages and communication coming through and all that okay that's what land is land is your smart room that's what your bioregion is it's your smart room it <laughs> expresses you like you express through that it expresses through you i guess that's where it's different as it's reciprocal you know one of you isn't the user and the other one the the tech you that's it's both sides you know you are both that and it's reciprocal you know that's what it is and that's what it becomes and I guess the, the big message that I bring today also, like on a different topic, is that, you know, most of the things that we're looking towards, you know, like an amazing smart room like that, these are affordances that already exist and have existed for a long time. These are affordances that, you know, it would be easier to pick them back up again um, than it would to, you know, push through to find that high-tech bloody solution that only a few people are going to be able to use anyway. Right. You know, so it's about getting getting back to that understanding, that embodiment, and you you must be embodied in your place. You must see your mind as more than just this brain bound thing. You know that, that it's in this haptic relation, you know, with all the things that you're in relation with, human and non-human, and you're unique in that. That's your uniqueness. It's not your demographic profile. You know, so my two kids. I mean, they're going to be separated in their identities by a, a lot of people, even though it's, you know, they've got the same mother and father, me and Megs, and both of these kids. But they're going to be separated a lot because, you know, one of them looks like Rihanna and the other one looks like Julian Assange. Completely. You know, so there's, like, so my daughter is a POC, but my son isn't. And they're completely, you know, 100% siblings. Not like half-brother and sister, but full. You know, but their actual identity is sitting within a family, you know, within a clan, within uh, two tribes, you know, that have come together uh, through that marriage, you know, in that relation from a much warmer place. That's their actual, that's their actual identity. And they, they sit within that. But they're going to have to navigate, you know, these other abstract layers of identity that others are going to be placing on them. Well, hopefully by the time they're 20, that won't exist anymore. Um, Yeah, things are going to change. Anyway, yeah, my big message would be that most of the affordances you're seeking from from the technologies that are being developed and dreamed up, you know, in sci-fi and everything else, these are pre-existing things. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you find them through a relation and an interspecies communication, you know, with your bioregion. And that's that. I mean, all these things. Okay. Your black goo. Oh, yeah. Your black goo stuff, sci fi, you know, that, that intelligent man. That already exists. Soil. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's existed for millions of years. It's fucking oil. This is the spirit of, of, you know, so uncountable, you know, masses of living beings that <laughs> has been compressed, you know, over deep time. And it's, it's in this literally a spirit and I call it a thing that all of the, the knowledge and information and patterning of all these things is in this, this goo, you know, and it's there for a reason. And it does speak. It, it speaks to people who are in touch with the land. There are things to know from that. It, it exists. Every now and then it even bubbles up to the top when it has something to say. But that's where it's supposed to be and that's its function. You know, imagine, you know, <laughs> burning all that and putting it into the sky um, in order to, you know, tinker enough technologies to arrive at programmable matter and, you know, some black goo that would do the same thing, but it's only going to last for five minutes. It sounds insane to me. Anyway, I don't know if we got, uh, if we got time to get back to that original stuff about the, the romanticizing of them, <laughs> of the primitive and, and where that came from and where the, tra- the traps and pitfalls are there. We can pick it up. Probably do it in five minutes. I do want to, I do just want to say that, like, I, I'm glad that you brought this layer forward just because Mm. yeah, this is again, citation three, William Merwin Thompson talks about misplaced concreteness and like, Mm. you know, people see, you know, they have a prophecy, which is like, they see the poetry of things. They see the, 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 Mm. the, the, the real shape of things, but it's that they, they mistake it for prediction. They're, they're placing like a, you know, a, a deeper understanding of the pattern of our world into like, mm. oh, this is going to happen. And so like, that's, you know, I, I, I love reading science fiction in the way that, that you're kind of, it's like, yeah, this is actually all of this stuff, like the little, like the gray aliens being like bunker dwelling, inbred, whatever. It's like, that's not our future. That's, yeah. that's like, we're talking about stuff that's going on now, except we have to talk about yeah. it over there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, so no, yeah, that, that's a part of our soul. Yeah. <laughs> Now, part of no, our soul, but our psyche for sure. I mean, it's a, definitely a representation of that coming through. Right. So well, we're going, hey, this one's. <laughs> so you led me right up to the door of the last thing I I wanted to talk with you about, and maybe this is I'll, I'll let you take a fork in the road, or maybe take both forks mm. if you if you think you can. But it was it was you know a conversation that you were having about queering dignitas on on the hey. other others. I love that episode yeah. and. Yeah. You know, you were talking about something that I think like is was basically the premise of this show, which was mm. about dreaming the past into being and being led by our descendants and the relationship that mm. we have with the unborn and the way that we are the unborn in relationship with our ancestors. Mm. And, you know, like I, I feel like, you know, we've had this sort of, uh, you know, we've, We've said some things, they're kind of like critical things about retro romanticism. We've also yeah. said some critical things about this, this sort of like dissociated futurism that mistakes the future for the past. And yeah. so it seems like if you really wanted to like full court three point shot the end of this, <laughs> then like we get, you know, then like I mean, I'm curious to hear you unpack a little bit more about yeah. like what your, your actual lived experience and your thoughts are about, about your, role as the unborn 
future looking back on things and and your relationship mm. with the unborn future that's looking back at you right now that that's like it's unborn but it's here it's you know yeah well we we didn't really get into the the physics the indigenous physics of time and place maybe we'll, and embodiment so maybe that's like a whole, <laughs> so that's kind, another, a whole separate that's another big thing but i guess you know it, it's just um you know and this isn't like uh slaughterhouse five like you know caterpillar dude yeah yeah <laughs> kind, of, kind of thing you know because i mean that that's if you could see all times at once it wouldn't look like that anyway <laughs> you know because there's a context for each segment of that caterpillar too and so you know you wouldn't just be seeing that person as you know a, a, an entire like, caterpillar from life from birth to death you know that you'd be seeing the whole thing <laughs> and that would be you know there isn't a metaphor to describe that um but look, I mean, I guess, you know, if, if you're living more in this, um, you know, some people say cyclic, but it's not quite that either. You know, if you're living more in uh, an indigenous ontology and cosmology in which everything's dreaming and all dreaming is complete and whole and entire, you know, everything that ever was, ever will be, everything that was ever known or ever will be known just is. It's one thing, and that you are you choose a narrative path through that. Um, yeah, if you're there, then <laughs> you're you're seeing it very differently in terms of what the future is, and and uh, you know what can be extracted from the future to the present by you know a, a, the time traveler's wife's husband or whatever, you know. <laughs> So look, and that was a garbage truck going past. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I like having those sounds, in the book. it situates me in my poxy context. Right, like yeah, that's that's the um, thing. Uh, the future doesn't actually want me editing the show because it wants you know. Yeah, it's like that's that's, that's the useful. That's the, <laughs> it wants it. It wants a good and good and grainy. Right, it wants it wants to uh, grainy, it wants but the, not granular. We fecal transplant. We've had we've had trouble. Um, I tell you, it's 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 broad. What we've been looking at, it's been very hard to get any kind of granularity going on anything. But uh, the queering dignitas, that that really, that was a great yarn uh, with a Maori fellow who's, who's, you know, very into queer, but not, a, not, not necessarily queer theory, but queer praxis. Mm. So it, it's about um, queering as a verb, you know, as an action in the world. And for him, it's a way of um, of, of increasing mana you know, from that Maori sort of point of view, which is kind of like pride, spirit, beauty. It, it's a lot of things, you know. So, um, yeah, and but we also, we were looking at that and comparing it with the Roman concept of dignitas because that dignitas, that I mean, that was all of the, you know, accumulated pride and respect and power that you, you gathered to yourself and how you carried yourself in that and around in the world. But also, we were looking at the different sexualities that are produced by those two different things. So we were looking at mana and the sexualities that come out of that, and then we were looking at Roman dignitas and the sexualities that came out of that. And that <laughs> the Roman one was very, you know, dominating, extractive, etc. I mean, you know all about that. The uh, sex is something that is for the penetrator. You know, it's something to be enjoyed. How the how the receiver of it feels is irrelevant. You know, sex is something that's done 
and that increases the the dignitas of the penetrator and decreases the dignitas of the penetrated. And really, you know, homosexuality, heterosexuality, these aren't sexualities within that Roman thing. That they don't exist as group identities or categories of sexuality. It's just you have the penetrator and the penetrated. There's your categories. <laughs> you know, so we were talking about that and how entropic that was, but then also how much has been inherited, you know, um, you know, into the world that we're living in today, how much is inherited from that. And then we were also, so we were looking at, um, you know, mana and the sexualities that come from that and how he kind of resents having to use words like queer and, you know, gay and, and all these kinds of things, the entire rainbow. He kind of resents that because they're settler expressions of, of sexuality as well. So that he, he, he tries to make sure he's doing queering as a praxis because his sexuality is something that comes, that is, is an expression of his mana and that increases his mana in his way. And there isn't a word for it in settler sexualities. So he just bees. <laughs> you know, but he bees through his action of, you know, what queering is. So he, he does permaculture, uh, he does a, a fair bit of science and things like that, but all of these things he's always queering those disciplines. But the idea of that is actually to produce, you know, innovation, better thinking, all that kind of stuff. It's not a critique, you know, it's not a critique of a discipline because then what, what do you got? Nothing, a pseudoscience. You know, he's actually doing a praxis that is bringing new life and mana to whatever discipline he comes to. You know, he's, he's making innovations, you know, by querying that. He's adding to it. He's not taking something away from a discipline or criticizing a discipline or criticizing people who are doing it. He's bringing his own set of relations and his own praxis to that. And, um, I just, I found that really exciting that idea of querying things. So he's annoyed about like, you know, cause I mean, I guess some um, marriage equality, there was an opportunity for, for a, a lot of people to queer the institution of marriage in a way that might've revitalized it and made it into something sustainable. And, you know, and as the basic unit of our enslavement in, <laughs> in this system, you know, that was originally installed as a system of perverse incentives by the church, you know, what, what the LGBTQ community could have brought to that in, in an act of queering that institution, it could have brought us to the next sort of evolution and, and basis for everything, governance, everything else. Because where does governance emerge from? Where does that patterning come from? It comes from you, the way you live in your family, you know, and sexuality is absolutely key to that. You know, so the idea that they might have been able to come in and queer the institution was really exciting to me and was really exciting to him too. But what happened instead was that, um, you know, marriage heteronormativized the queer <laughs> instead. So it was this act of assimilation and he even saw it as, as, as colonization. It was a colonization of, you know, people whose genius has been bloody keeping this civilization going from the margins forever, you know, from Alexander of Macedon right through to Alan Turing. It's some um, gay guys who have been keeping this thing afloat. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that was an amazing conversation. And just queering the concept of dignitas in terms of not just critiquing it, but, but actually, you know, thinking about what it would take as a praxis 
to clear that and beautify it and build, you know, something amazing from it, you know, but then that comes back to answering that question where there's a big Bayesian sort of leap, you know, to make, if you are asking the question of how do we be and how do we become, that's like, well, you know, you're in the dark for a bit there. Mm. There's a bit of a leap of faith and there are no nets. And, um, but I tell you, it's worth doing because if you can recover that, uh, that communication with place and that, that, haptic kind of embodiment of mind and being and collectivity at the same time as you know your fabulous autonomy um you know balanced together if you can recover that pattern of relation even in the smallest relationship even in just in the way you fuck in your sexuality then that's it it'll uh it'll ice nine through everything so yeah so not Slaughterhouse Five, but yes, cat, yes, cat's cradle. <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut gets, still gets to win the day. Yeah, yeah. Wow. All right. Well, Kurt must win. You know, we've made pretty far. Speaking speaking of dudes who who, who spell Kurt with a K, mm-hmm. just really quickly. So, your whole Indo-European thing. Yeah, but like, there's just one word surviving. I think like that's used every like in daily speech, and that's where from Indo-European language. Where, like uh, W-E-R-E kind of thing. Mm. And it's only used in the sense of werewolf. Because where, where I think means man in the Indo-European. But Indo-European itself is kind of a, um, it's kind of a construct, you know. It's kind of a, a seeking back for that, that fabulous primitive past mm-hmm. where people were better. Like when Kronos was daddy rather than Zeus, you know, it's looking back to that time. Like the Greeks with the Hyperboreans. I mean, that's a bit fucked up, though, yeah? Originally, originally, we, like, it was only recently they started calling it Indo-European because before that they were saying Indo-Aryan. And Indo-Aryan, that, that Aryan mythology, you know, that came out of those original Greek ethnographies when they, when they sort of uh, actually started meeting some natives and they didn't have to make some up from Hyperborea and they were coming into contact and, and building colonies on the lands of Celts and, and, and Scythians, Scythians from the Ukraine, you know, <laughs> they were coming into contact with these people and they were finding them to be, you know, oh my God, these people are of the highest ideal. We should all aspire to, you know, their governance, their morality, their intellect, everything else, their traditions. We should aspire to these because these are so far superior to our own. These are people from the time of Kronos kind of thing. So you had that side of the ethnographers. Then you had the other side that were calling them barbarians, which is they're barbarians because that's how their language sounds to us. Ba 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 ba. You know, it's it's nonsense. You know? So <laughs> so you had the ethnographers that were you know noble savaging them. Then you had the ethnographers that were um, you know painting them as these you know just savage primitive bloody brutes. And and that survived until today. And it's, I mean, you don't have to choose either side of that binary either when you come down to it. It's, it's looking at what affordances realistically did exist and are recoverable from your place, from your, <laughs> your bioregion, you know, from the praxis. So you're not like, you know, it's not like my big gay wedding, but it's queering the institution of marriage. You know what I mean? It's the process rather than the content. If you're not taking indigenous content, if you're actually, you know, um, looking at connection or relatedness as a praxis, and that's the way you're coming to indigenous knowledge, 
then that's the way to go. No one can cancel you for that. You know, you're doing this as a praxis. You're not collecting headdresses. You're not gammon carrying a pipe. Because that's some serious shit to be a pipe carrier. You know, you're, um, you're actually living it. It's your praxis. It's your being. And you're happy with being in a way of transition. You're not longing to have this mastery in your lifetime. You're happy to be one step in a time of transition. You know, as we move into the thousand year cleanup and then beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that'd be my thoughts about that. Well, that's a, a fine place to call this one. Tangled narrative. To cut the yarn. Let it, <laughs> let it just be the yarn ball that it was. Tyson, I want to, I want to thank you. I, you know, I, I have a bad habit of doing this where I'm, I, I get to know people on the show. And so yeah, yeah. the conversation just goes everywhere. And mm-hmm. people, you know, like, I, I hope if, if people felt like, oh my God, like, what did you guys actually ever actually say anything? I hope that that's not what you were looking for is that, that we're not, we're not arriving no, at the I mean, promised land here. Yeah. Yeah. We are sniffing each other's well, we both butts. We knew each other too well before we've even met. Just, yeah. just through the work. Yeah. Know, so, uh, yeah. A little, a little, uh, we're so excited. Over researched or something. Things, but that'll, that'll come. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks man for talking. And I, I look forward to talking with you again as, as soon as yeah, it makes the sense to do it. All right, man. Take care. <laughs> Catch you later. Thanks again for listening. Future fossils is an independent, entirely listener supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon. <laughs>